time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Monday, December 22nd, 2008. And I'm on the road. Recording this episode from a hotel room. High atop the San Jose skyline. Actually, it's really pretty up here. Flew into San Jose last night for a business trip and uh, staying in the downtown part of San Jose. And boy, they got this place dolled up. It just is gorgeous. It looks really, really nice. Got Christmas tree down the street. They got an ice skating rink. They got a they got a Chris they got a Christmas train. Well, maybe it's a holiday train. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. San Jose is not exactly known for um, being pro Christian, but. They, they, they've really decked out for Christmas, even if they only think it's a holiday. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the show that your pastor may have warned you about. This is the show that uh, that may cause supreme dissatisfaction with your church. Why? Well, we ask the tough questions. We ask the questions, is what you're hearing the Word of God? Is that what the Bible really teaches? We can, We take what people say in the public and compare it to the Word of God, and if it doesn't stand up, then we say, hmm, there's a problem here. But uh, we do a lot more than that, too. We also do a little bit of news analysis. In fact, we got some very interesting news today. We're going to cover cover a couple of stories. Remember last week we talked about Rick Warren and the uh, and the whole flap about him giving the invocation at Obama's inauguration. I asked you all to send in emails letting me know whether or not you thought it was wrong and sinful for him to be doing so. And so far, I haven't received any, e- well, nope, I, I've received one, I've received one that kind of says that. But uh, for the most part, none of, the, none of the listeners of Fighting for the Faith have emailed me and said, no, he shouldn't be there. But uh, Joseph Farah from World Net Daily, Joseph Farah, he's a conservative, he's, a, he's an evangelical, and uh, he's taken issue with uh, what what Rick Warren is doing and has gone so far as to write an article, uh, an opinion piece at World Net Daily. I think he runs that outfit. And uh, and the point of which, the purpose of which is to basically challenge Rick Warren and say that uh, he shouldn't be there. And so we're going to get to that today. We're going to list, we're going to read a, a, a piece from Christianity Today that I'm actually thrilled with. They did a great job and uh, challenging some of the assumptions be- behind uh, church marketing. They've got a secret Santa, not secret Santa, a secret shopper uh, program that they, they've reviewed and talked about. And I, I love the piece because it asks, it asks the right questions. And so we're going to get to that today. And then also what we're going to be getting to is uh, we're going to be playing a Sunday school lesson that I taught Years and years ago, no, well, I'm not, well, in 2005, I taught it in 2005, and it was a Christmas lesson, and the funny thing is, is that that particular um, Sunday school lesson um, is as relevant today as it was back in 2005, and so we'll be playing segments of that today on the show, so I hope you uh, stay tuned and stay with us, it'll be very interesting. So on with the uh, the Rick Warren thing, L- like we said last week, we covered this, we asked the question, hey, you know, is there is there any reason why Rick Warren should not be going? Biblically, what should we look at? And Joe Farah in World Net Daily, I'll put a link up for it at fightingforthefaith.com, he has an open letter to Rick Warren that he's that he's posted. And um, he writes a he writes a column there called Between the Lines. So he does uh, opinion op ed, and basically, it has to you know he is 
challenging Rick Warren on his decision to do this based purely on the issue of abortion. So here we go. Here's uh, Joe Farah's piece. He says, I, Joe Farah writes, he says, I'm writing to share my profound and abject revulsion at your agreement to offer the invocation at the inauguration of Barack Hussein Obama as president on January 20th. I understand you want this to be a time of healing for our nation, and I understand you consider Obama to be your friend, and I understand your desire to bring civility to our society. However, when we read the Bible, we see that there are times for men of God to stand up to leaders like like Nathan did to King David and confront them with the absolute truth of God's word and his laws. That's what all Christians should do when confronted with leaders embracing evil. Evil? That's a strong word, but I use it advisedly. Let's focus on just one of Obama's evil policies, though there are dozens more that we should consider. Barack Obama is opposed to any and all restrictions on the killing of unborn children and has pledged to work against the few that remain. In fact, as a state legislator in Illinois, he pushed a law that would require the killing of, of babies born alive after unsuccessful abortions. You know he will also open the floodgates to the use of U.S. taxpayer dollars to fund abortions overseas through groups like Planned Parenthood and agencies such as the United Nations Population Fund. You should note the U.N. supports forced abortion and sterilization in China. He has even promised to sign into law the Freedom of Choice Act, which would make illegal even peaceful efforts to persuade mothers from aborting their, their babies. In essence, Obama holds and has pledged to enforce a radical pro-abortion position that, work, that will curtail free speech, freedom of religion, and ensure that many more innocent lives will be destroyed. And I call that evil. I would hope that you, Pastor Rick Warren, a pastor of the gospel of Jesus Christ, would also call that evil. I'm trying to imagine Jesus giving an invocation at the inauguration of such a man. I think you will agree that it's unimaginable. So why are you ready, willing, and eager to do this thing? I ask you as a brother in the Lord to examine your heart and mind and your soul as you as your motivations for offering this prayer. Yes, we are commanded to pray for our leaders. But there's no suggestion in the Bible that we are ever to be used as political pawns by praying at their events, especially when they are promoting the wholesale slaughter of innocent human beings. I understand you're yearning for civility. I yearn for it too. But civility begins with the understanding that we are all made in the image of God. It begins with the rejection of the shedding of innocent blood. It begins with the church standing boldly upon its absolute convictions in the word of God and his laws. I'm sure that you would not want to invoke God's blessing on the inauguration of a figure like Adolf Hitler, whose rise to power brought the destruction of millions of lives. So in principle, you agree that there is a time for believers to stand up to elected leaders and rebuke them, even publicly. Apparently, you don't believe that that time is now, and that the deaths of untold numbers of unborn babies is not justification enough for such a stance. I disagree, and I want you to know that. God will not bless the Obama administration's plans for murder, no matter what you say on January 20th. It's time for Rick Warren to decide whether he stands with God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or if he stands with the world and his friend, Barack Hussein Obama. Well, there you have it. That, that right there is probably the most lucid argument that I've read, heard, seen for Rick Warren to not go and give the invocation at at Obama's inauguration. The question is 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 this really the right way of looking at it? Now, personally, I'll I'll, I'll say this is my opinion, so you, you you can take it or leave it. 
I think Joe Farah has a point. I, in fact, I agree with him on this. The abortion issue is not is not a neutral issue. It's not. And personally, that would never be in, in, invited to do such a thing. But if I were asked, I would have to decline because I wouldn't want to be seen as endorsing somebody who is so flagrantly, so flagrantly and rabidly on the move to expand abortion rights and, you know, and wants to see unborn children killed. I, I, you know, I've been fighting this battle, you know, even when I was at focus on the family, I never, I never got rid of these convictions because I think the scripture is so clear. Unborn human beings are human beings and they can't speak for themselves. And even though it's this, the abortion issue is one where people are tired of fighting the battle, we can't get tired of fighting this issue. And the reason why is because these babies cannot speak for themselves. And the United States of America literally has the blood of millions of unborn children on its hands. And we cannot get tired of fighting this, this battle. We must continue to stand for them. And my concern is, is that with Rick Warren, at this point, you know, going there, that it's setting a different course and a different direction for evangelicals, if you would, or for Christians as a whole, and somehow legitimizing that we can work together and, and believe that God is blessing somebody whose policies are blatantly evil. And Rick Warren is on record as saying that he believes that abortion is genocide. Well, that being the case, then, uh, you know, is it really right for him? Is it really prudent and wise for him to go and ask for God's blessing on Obama's administration? Are there no principles on which we should say, nope, I can't do that? Personally, I think we need to get back to a principled position. So there you have it. That's uh, Joe Farr's piece. And again, that's the most lucid argument against it that I've seen. And what's funny is is that, believe me when I tell you, when you read the liberal press, the, the, the liberal press, they are excruciating uh, Rick Warren, you know, basically calling him a bigoted homophobe. And uh, a bigoted anti-choice, and basically, you know, making Rick Warren sound like that he's just just somewhere above Neanderthal, um, and uh, and questioning why why on earth uh, Barack Obama would have him as a pick. In fact, there's one. Let me pull this one up real quick. There's a news story from Aldernet, which is a uh, let's say a website dedicated to liberal and progressive ways of thinking, and uh, the way they. Uh, <laughs> The headline that they read is a bigot anti-choice pastor pick for Obama's inauguration. That's that's what the headline came through on the RSS feed. That's right. It's a the headline for this read a bigoted anti-choice pastor picked for Obama's inauguration. Um, the uh, the subhead read a very strange pick. Pastor Rick Warren opposes gay marriage, doesn't believe in evolution, and compared abortion to the Holocaust. You know, it's it's news stories like this that remind you. That uh, that liberal, progressive, non-Christian, human secularists, if you would, um, they're not interested in getting along with Christians. They're not interested in co- coexisting. What they're really interested in doing is defeating us in the marketplace of ideas. And that being the case, you know, you got to be careful in how you set your alliances up with these people because they're really not. They're not about getting along that's not what they're about they're they're about they they have ideological convictions that they are sticking to their guns on and uh my question is where's our ideological convictions that we stick to our guns on you know it, the, the, apparently you know those days are gone and now the 
the rule of the day is to uh, everybody have a group hug and to get along. <sighs> All right, moving along to the next issue. Um, this there was a um, an uh, another article that appeared in uh, Christianity Today. It's called "Get Thee Behind Us," and I got to tell you, I'm impressed with this one. Normally, I don't like what what comes out of Christianity Today because um, you know it's more like uh, Christianity reimagined in my mind. But Mark Golly from the uh, from Christianity Today put together an article in you know in which I basically say you know hey this is a good sign and the uh the article is about a press release that they received at uh Christianity Today and the purpose of the ch- of the press release was to uh promote a uh church service called Church Check it, um Church Check basically offers a secret worshiper program and I'll read to you the article uh, you know, so that you can get a feel for what's going on. But if you're not familiar with uh, secret shoppers and things like that, if you've ever worked in retail, if you've ever worked in retail, then you know that uh, um, that they have the corporate offices many times send secret shoppers. And those secret shoppers, uh, what they do is they come into your store and they'll they'll basically blend with the crowd, do their thing. But what they you know they've got like a you know some kind of a device or maybe a clipboard or some way of n- noting the things that they're they're seeing in the store. You know. You know, how was the customer service? Was it good? Was it bad? And uh, secret shoppers are are a way of uh, having corporates, corporate offices really make sure, guarantee the uniformity of experience across the different uh, franchises. And so, um, you know, this is a concept that come, is now being brought into the church. Christianity Today is responding then to this, to an to a press release that they received from Church Check that's offering similar services for churches. Here we go. Church Check, a division of parent company Guest Check, announced today the immediate availability of a new service offering widely differing in scope from its current client base within the hospitality industry. Thus begins a, a press release we received at Christianity Today's offices this week. The name Church Check naturally caught our attention, as did the offer of the new service. So we read on. After years of success, uh, success focusing in hospitality, uh, Guest Check was approached by a single church congregation over two years ago and asked to consider providing inspection services. Their primary goal was to assess the Sunday morning experience of a non-biased third-party visitor. The church leadership wanted to get an unbiased and anonymous review of the guest experience. Our team of savvy professionals can secretly worship at your church, analyze it in detail, and present you with a report detailing items that are lacking. With this report, you can make changes that boost your retention rate and make your church grow. Make the adjustments our team suggests, and you'll not only retain more of your first-time visitors, you'll get them talking to their friends about you. <laughs> okay, so here we've got the secret shopper, uh, sec- I'm sorry, secret worshiper program, and they're claiming that if you take their advice, then, then your church is going to grow. The story continues. Guest Check helps you create an environment in which your guests enjoy themselves so much that they won't want to leave. More importantly, we help you create a church whose guests can stop, can't stop talking about, and uh, we'll, uh, we all know the power of word-of-mouth marketing. So there you go. See, you're, you're going to create an, a, a guest a worship experience that people will just – they won't be able to stop talking about you. Regardless of the church's religious affiliation, inspectors must, willing to make the, must be willing to make the visit with an open mind and be comfortable assessing your experience on a very objective, non-emotional level. Successful church 
check inspectors are professional, attentive, organized, and able to express their observations objectively and without emotion. And why right now might churches need this service? Now, this is the question that uh, is very interesting. Watch what they do here. Americans are getting less and less dogmatic about their religion, and it's becoming more difficult for churches to keep their guests. Recent studies show that 66% of Americans with church affiliations believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. 68% believe that there is more than one way to interpret the teachings of their religion. Statistics like this show that more than ever, Americans have no problem with church shopping or leaving their current congregation and moving on to another. So there you have it. Because people are willing to move on to others, then it's imperative that you... And your church created an experience where people have a word-of-mouth type of attitude. Now, what's wrong with this? Well, the answer is there's all kinds of things wrong with this. You know, and you have to start with your assumptions. And number one, my, my question is, um, when did church become a business? Why are we running this like a retail outfit? Why are we running this like a Starbucks you know, where we're, we're grading people's experiences and using that as a measure for success and, and as the indicator for whether or not we're going to grow. What, ha- what about faithfully preaching the Word of God, correct doctrine? What about, you know, claiming dogmatic absolutes? The reality is, is that, you know, this outfit basically makes it sound like you're just going to need to go along with the fact that the people can go church shopping and that, you know, they don't like absolutes, and so we're going to do this backwards. We're going we're gonna to focus in on what people want and give them what they want. Again, that's a problem. And to Christianity Today's credit, to their credit, they actually wrote against this. In fact, well, let's continue with Mark Golley's commentary on this press release. Mark writes, he says, it's hard to know where to begin. This is a near-perfect example of what happens when we let marketing experts into the church building. Hoorah! Amen, Mark, you're right. He says, even if I attempt to speak a charitable word, as I always try to do in such moments, it only points to a deep and abiding flaw in in the contemporary church. The modern American church is often so large, so businesslike in its approach to ministry that it easily loses track of new people who might walk in the door. Most churches long ago abandoned the idea that a church can be a genuine community where people really know each other, where they notice every single visitor and strike up conversations with them during and after Sunday morning. In a genuine community, there would be absolutely no need of mystery church inspectors because the community would know precisely how they practice the gift of hospitality. But the contemporary church has lost, is so lost and desperate for tools and resources that can help them study their guests. Even this might help. Mark has a great point here. You know, folks, I'm a strong believer in small churches. I don't think what we need is a bunch of, uh, we don't need a bunch of mega churches. I consider those big box churches to actually be the problem because they water down the gospel. They make things bland. They go with man-centered approaches to things. And what really, we shouldn't be having these churches where 22,000 people are in attendance. What we need to do is train more young men to be pastors and plant a, you know, a bunch of two, 300 member classes, uh, churches where people can, can literally um, have a community that they're part of. In our church, I attend a very small church. We know when a visitor's come in the door because we know our community. And so it's, it's really easy to spot somebody who's been there for the first time and make a beeline to them to strike up a conversation and get to know them and make them feel welcome. But uh, in these big box churches, you it's not so easy to do that because they're big box. 
So Mark continues, it says, Why would a church, a place that is supposed to be characterized by genuineness and humility, ask a group of savvy professionals to help it? Isn't there something in the New Testament about the gospel subverting the wisdom of the wise? Yes, there is, Mark, and I'm glad you're pointing this out. Is it possible for savvy professionals to understand what a church is really about? Uh, That's a great question, Mark, and I would say the answer is no, they really can't. Is worship that is practiced secretly with the goal of assessing the experience on a very objective and non-emotional level really worship of God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Can one truly enter into a worshiping community objectively, secretly, and without emotion? Worship is not about judging the worship experience, but about putting oneself humbly before God to be judged and forgiven by him. <laughs> Mark, you're dealing with an old world uh, definition of Christianity, and I love it. This is He's absolutely right. Law and gospel right there. So Mark continues, says, Furthermore, to enter into the community of God, that is to grasp the essence of that unique experience, one must come as an identified individual who's willing to lay his secrets before God and to some degree before others, confessing sins to one another, as James says, who gives himself body and soul to the love of God and who does so with emotional freedom. To try to worship while suppressing these vital and warm uh, human elements is surely to fail to grasp what you are doing. Mark, I'm impressed. Here we he even has a concept that one of the things we should be doing in church is confessing our sins, laying our souls bare before God and others. But see, that's not why people attend these big box churches. I can't I I come to think of it, you know, in in my years I've been to many big box churches and I can't remember the last time I ever heard a confession of sins in a big box church. Um I I think the concept is foreign. Um, so we continue with Mark. Should churches really make it a goal to boost your retention rate and make your church grow? Is that not a product of other things like faithful worship, meaningful biblical teaching, and sacrificial love for one another and the neighbor? What has happened to a church that makes boosting your retention rate a focus instead of these other things? Do churches really want to create an institution whose guests can't stop talking about it? Isn't the point of the church to get people thinking and talking about Jesus Christ? <laughs> Notice what Mark is doing here is, is that he's basically questioning the assumptions of you know what's really behind here. And I, it, and I got to give him an absolute applause and kudos because he gets it. You know, what is the church about? Is it about an experience? Is it about truth? Is it about, you know, what does it say in Scripture? Those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth truth so we continue and what would make us think that americans are getting less and less dogmatic about their religion and it's becoming more difficult for churches to keep their guests when a study after study shows that dogmatic churches are the only ones who can keep their guests Uh, that's interesting. All in all, marketing resources like Church Check only exacerbate the fundamental and tragic lie that infects the hearts and minds of so many churches and guests today, that church is about us and our experiences. Yep, that's right. In most instances, I try to be open and charitable about any service that can help a church be the church, but more and more I'm thinking that a tool whose veins run with the blood of marketing is the exception that proves the rule. No, flee from the devil and run fastest when he comes disguised as an angel of light. Amen. I think this is a great piece. I'll put a link up to this up at uh, fightingforthefaith.com so that you can read, you know, read it for yourself. But this is definitely worth passing along. And I give kudos to Mark Golly uh, for asking the tough questions that, that basically expose the errors in thinking and the, pro- and the problems and the premises behind church check. <laughs> 
and uh, and uh, the churches that would employ such methods. All right, we're going to take our first break. I know it's a little bit early, but we're going to take our first break. And when we come back, uh, I'm going to play a Sunday school lesson on Christmas that I gave uh, a couple of years ago when I was uh, teaching Sunday school at a different church. And uh, the message is as relevant today as it was then. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Fighting for the Faith is underwritten in part by LifeLock. Did you know that identity theft is a $50 billion a year business? And the severe downturn in the economy is providing identity thieves with even more incentives to hijack your identity and destroy your good name. But LifeLock provides a proactive identity theft service specializing in the prevention of identity theft rather than the reporting of it. LifeLock was founded in 2005 and is already considered the industry leader in identity theft prevention. In fact, LifeLock CEO Todd Davis is so confident in LifeLock's ability to protect your good name and stop identity thieves dead in their tracks that he freely shares his social security number on television, radio, and the internet. Furthermore, LifeLock guarantees its services up to $1 million. For more information on LifeLock, visit FightingForTheFaith.com and click on the LifeLock logo on our homepage. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. A little bit of a shorter show today, because I'm on the road. But my job as your servant in Jesus Christ is to dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment, and I didn't want to pass up the opportunity to do so, even though I was traveling. Okay, folks, uh, this next part of Fighting for the Faith, actually this this segment is the last segment of today's show, and it's a Sunday school lesson on Christmas. It's a timeless message. It's a good message. It's hard-hitting, a little bit controversial, and uh, in all kinds of fun. I hope that you enjoy it. Without any further ado, here is uh, a Sunday school lesson on Christmas. So I will be teaching a, a Christmas lesson today. And uh, you can't help but hear the gospel today because the message of Christmas is the gospel itself. So with that, let's dive into our lesson And today we're going to talk about, first, the current state of affairs, USA Christmas, found this wonderful cartoon that kind of says it all. we got kids sitting in front of the principal's office. One of them says, I said the S-H word. The other said, I said the F word. The other said, I said Christmas. Ouch. 30 years ago, I'm told, that uh, the fight about Christmas was whether or not it was getting too commercial. Everyone was concerned about the commercialization of Christmas. In fact, that's one of the themes of the Charlie Brown Christmas story. If you've seen it, you know, everyone wants the aluminum Christmas tree. 
Nowadays, you can't find an aluminum Christmas tree. They're kind of a specialty item. But I remember my grandma used to have an aluminum Christmas tree and one of those color wheels that would spin and change color. I thought it was so cool when I was a kid. But uh, those aluminum Christmas trees became the symbol of commercialization. But today, it's worse than that. Today, it's the politicization. Say that ten times fast. The politicization of Christmas. Think about it for a minute. Politics is temporal power. And coming out of the woodwork this year are people who are anti-Christmas merely because of the fact that they're from a blue state. People who are against Christmas because it's political payback time. Okay? Red states versus blue states we talk about today. In fact, the way the media describes it, it's often described as right-wing Christian fundamentalists you can read into that word fanatics, versus those who are more enlightened, less superstitious, and culturally progressive. But remember, this is the politicization of Christmas. So this has to do with power and payback. And so the the idea is, is that red states are Republican, blue states are Democrat. And so what's happening is, especially in the media, since the media is controlled mostly by blue state type people, is that it's payback time. We're going to get back at you. And so the, the motivation for getting back, in many senses, has to do with the fact that they're mad and retaliating because politically they don't have the power that they did. It's very dangerous when Christmas gets politicized. Now, interesting thing. Let me show you an example of what I mean by this. And I was happy to find this week that there is an entire movement on the religious left. And they have a website for the religious left where you can go and buy religious left paraphernalia. Christ is in the crosshairs this Christmas because here we have a nativity scene and it says it's a girl. Things do not look so good, do they? Christ is in the crosshairs. We're under attack. It's political. It's religious. It's cool and hip and progressive now, too attack the fundamental beliefs of Christianity and to be openly anti-Christian and openly hostile to Christianity. But I got news for you. It's all nothing but noise. Let me explain. Satan has many strategies when it comes to defeating Christ and the message of the gospel. And what we're seeing at this Christmas is some of those strategies. First of all, the goal here is to create fear, to immobilize Christians. Look at what we're going to do to you if you open your mouth. So it's just safer to just keep your mouth shut, is it not? Satan wants to ensure that Christ is not preached. And by the way, we fall for this because we become too busy and emotionally involved in waging unimportant battles. Let me give you an example. Is Santa Claus good or bad? Is it evil that Walmart says happy holidays? Think about it for a second. Walmart is not a Christian. Walmart is a business entity. And they serve everybody, pagan, Christian, atheist alike. This is a big money-making season for them. I don't care if they say happy holidays or not. I don't expect Walmart to preach the gospel. However, I get to. So the goal is to get the church off of offense and put them on defense. 
Men, you can relate to this. Many sports teams, just like many sports teams, you cannot score while you're playing defense. While you're playing defense, the only things you can do are either hold your ground or lose it. Think about it. So if Satan gets us on defense, we're not on the offense. Yes. Yes. Interception. Yes. Okay. In volleyball, you can't, though. (laughs) So at some point, the metaphor breaks down a little bit. Yes, you can score if you intercept the ball. But generally, the idea is offense is for scoring, defense is for keeping the other team from scoring. Satan would love nothing better than to see the entire Christian church put on defense so that Christ is not proclaimed, Christ is not preached, we're off topic, and next thing you know, he wins. Well, I have a different message this morning. Now that we've seen how bad it is, let's talk about this for a second. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. Harvest is plentiful. Stop and listen to what your friends, your neighbors, your fellow Americans and family members are saying about the Bible. Take a look at what's happening around you. And just to help you out here, I actually have a soundbite from a radio program that I'm going to let you listen to. You're going to hear college students, today's up-and-coming, bright, young students, being asked the question, what is the Bible about? What is the Bible about? And some of the people who answer these questions will identify themselves as Christ, excuse me, as Christians. Listen carefully to what they say. Opinion of the Bible. What's it about? Um, it's morals. And it's got big punishments if you don't do that and big rewards if you do. The Old and New Testaments, what do you think they're about? Uh, I really don't know. Okay. I'm a philosophy major, yep. so this is a, an interesting one. I would say that the Bible is a, a set of moral theories and suggestions, as all theories are. I was raised on it, basically. What's uh, it about? It's about creation. It's about... If you are to boil it down to one thing, rules of life? Yeah, the standard of living. What else comes to mind if you are to it's summarize guy. it? Yeah, a helpful guide. I really don't really read the Bible. Regardless, what, what do you think it's about? Um, basically, uh, the myth of the time back when it was written. And it's been reinterpreted so much that it, there's no way to clearly get a message. Well, the Old Testament obviously is, Jesus isn't born yet, but New Testament I'm more familiar with, but uh, just Jesus' journey and pretty much through his teachings and through stories, they tell you how you, one should live your life and by the basics of Ten Commandments and also just the way Jesus lived and the way he preached to the, his apostles and disciples and stuff like that. So. so basically the Bible is about how I should live? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that the Bible's message is one of peace and harmony and hope for humankind. I am a Christian, so I believe in the Bible, and I really like the message of hope. It tells people how they should live, and it just spreads the message of be nice to everybody. Be nice to your neighbor, be nice to your friends, be nice to your enemies. And that's not a bad message to be spreading around, so that's what I think about it. 
was at a college, major college campus. Okay, a little bit of a reality check. Okay, those, those answers are not the worst sampling. You know, I know the people who put this together, and they, that was just the average sampling of what they heard. So let's have a little reality check here. First of all, it's time for us to get this and understand it. We are in a post-Christian America. That's reality. Okay? We are currently in a new pagan dark ages, and it is upon us now. Okay? And it's time for us to stop complaining about it, how it got this way. Even if we found the person responsible, it wouldn't save anybody. Okay? So, let me give you another, uh, another symbol here. I've been told, although I do not read Chinese, that the Chinese symbol for danger is also the same symbol for opportunity. Same symbol for danger is the same symbol for opportunity. Think about it. When there is danger, you either can let it oppress you and you can be defeated, or you have an opportunity to rise and meet the challenge. I think it's a rather wise way of saying it. So these are dangerous times. Post-Christian America. But with this danger comes great opportunity. How do I say that? What does the Lord say? The harvest is plentiful. And what did Jesus talk about Peter? He said he would be a fisher of men. I got news for you. The fishing right now couldn't be better. I guarantee you, you put that hook in the water, you are going to catch fish. Because right now, ain't a lot of people fishing. It's time to go fishing. These are great opportunity times. So if we're going to go fishing, or we're going to work in the harvest, where the harvest is plentiful, the question is, what is our message going to be? And so the question that was put before these college students is the same question I put before us in a slightly different way. What is our message going to be? And what are we going to tell people about the Bible? Are we going to tell people that the Bible is basically a philosophical work, a guidebook to happy living? That Christianity is a religion where you get results? Is that what we're going to tell them the Bible's about? I don't think so. Because that's not really what it is. I mean, that turns the Bible into the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. A plethora of knowledge about all things. But uh, you're kind of on your own to figure it all out. But turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Dr. Luke. I'm going to pick it up at verse 13. Let me set it up for you here. Jesus has been crucified. Three days have gone by. Jesus has raised from the dead. The women went to the tomb. They found the tomb empty. We now pick up the story later that afternoon. We have a couple of, of Jesus' disciples going from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Talking about Jesus' triumphal entry, his crucifixion, the trial. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and he walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. 
miraculous occurrence here. Jesus basically held their minds. So Jesus asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? So they stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and he broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The passage I'd like to point something out to you here is in verses 25 through 27. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What is the Bible about? College students were asked. The answer to the question is the one that they would never think. It's about Jesus. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, it is all about Jesus. And it takes an act of the Holy Spirit for you to realize that. To the pagan mind, it's just a bunch of rules and an angry God. To the Christian, it is the story of redemption and salvation. The scriptures testify about Jesus. We also see this in the Gospel of John in two places. John 5, 39, Jesus negatively speaking here to the Pharisees. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that, be, that by them you possess eternal life. Yet these are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now Jesus is either a megalomaniac or he knows exactly what he's talking about here. 
Remember when he called Philip and Nathaniel? John 1, 45. Philip and Nathaniel. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Was this not the message of the apostles? Remember Paul on his missionary journeys? Here's what he would do. According to Acts chapter 17, he said, When they had passed through Ampilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, it was a three-part series, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And the only thing they would have there would be the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. And reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Well, Jesus appeared to them. And, um, you know, this is when he was alive and basically called them to, uh, to be the, his disciples. And so, you know, Philip went and found Nathaniel to tell him the good news that they had found the Messiah. Now, if you'd like to get an idea of what Paul's preaching sounded like and how he used the Old Testament to preach Christ, we have an example of that in Scripture. If you would, turn with me from, to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We have a little, and Dr. Luke in Acts chapter 13 recorded a little bit more of what Paul's teaching would sound like. We get a little bit more of the content. And I'm going to start at 13, verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. And let's hear what he had to say. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country, and he endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. So in one paragraph, we have a sweeping summary of the first part of Scripture. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet, and then the people asked for a king. And he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king, and he testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he had promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. 
as John was completing his work, he said, Why do you, who do you think that I am? I am not that one. No, he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Interesting that Paul would give that kind of detail. And we'll explain in a minute why he would actually go that route and made sure to point out John the Baptist prior to the coming of Christ. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised to our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep and was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and then perish. For I am going to do something in your day that you would never believe, even if somebody told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. What is the Bible about? Jesus. The apostles sure believed that, didn't they? They'd march right into a Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath, open up the scriptures, and talk about Jesus. The prophets tell us about the Messiah, that he would be born to a virgin. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Prophets also tell us that he would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathath, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. The prophets tell us that a messenger would prepare the way for him. Malachi 3.1 See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. The prophets tell us that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11.12 I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. 
the prophets tell us that he would be crucified. And the description of crucifixion came hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented as a form of capital punishment. Psalm 22. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The prophets tell us that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53, 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The prophets tell us that he would rise from the grave. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And the prophets tell us that he would be God himself. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Matthew one twenty three. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, quoting Isaiah, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means... God with us. Who is this Jesus that was written about for thousands of years before he ever came? Who is this guy? He's the God who takes our sins away. John 1.29 The next day John saw Jesus. This is John the Baptist coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. God himself comes to earth to solve the sin problem. You couldn't do it. I can't do it. He did it. This is the message of the Bible. Not that the Bible is some guidebook to holy living, moral suggestions or moral principles. It is the story of God in human flesh. It is about Him from beginning to end. And to somehow make it other than that is to put ourselves first. And that's our sin nature reading into it. It's always about me, 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 and what I do, 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 do. No, it's not. That's not what the Bible's about. The Bible's about God. It's about Jesus and what He did. What He tells us is that we are sinners. We stand condemned before Him in our sin. And if we were to stand in judgment with our own righteousness, there is no hope for us. So God in His love and His mercy, from the moment Adam and Eve sinned, promised a solution to the problem. And as we've been reading through the book of Genesis, we've been following the line of Jesus. The coming, the promised Messiah, 
one who came for us. In uh, Marion's story that she shared yesterday, there was a couple of things that that really kind of piqued my interest. She was attending a friend's church in, uh, in the Arcadia, Pasadena area and had gone liberal. And her description of liberal was that they really preached a lot about social issues, but not about Christ. Okay? That was, that's a classic understanding of liberalism. In the liberal church back in the day, you know, rather than preaching the gospel in Christ, you would get tracts about, you know, going out and helping, you know, the, the race movements, you know, you know, fighting the war in Vietnam and things of that, social causes, making sure you feed the poor. And what has happened, as I've studied, really, Christianity in our times, evangelical churches, because they've made themselves consumer-based, seeker-sensitive, you know, and have watered down the gospel, they've opened themselves up to that old form of liberalism, you know, where Christianity becomes based and revolving around social causes. Want to make sure you have a purpose-driven life. Ouch. Okay? I'm not trying to pull any punches here. I'm just kind of laying it out. Yeah. Now, I, let, let, me, let me say this. The same people who did the, those interviews with college students, every year they go to the big evangelical booksellers convention, and they talk to Christians, and they ask them the same questions. The answers don't come back any different. There's a good tapestry. I, I like to study ancient and medieval artwork. And there's a tapestry in England. And in the tapestry, they, they show a battle scene between you know, uh, some British soldiers and, and you know, people coming over from France. And what was interesting is, is that in the tapestry itself, there's a picture of a bishop who has a spear. And he's holding the spear to the back of his troops, spurring them on to get into battle. And the caption in the tapestry reads that the bishop is comforting his troops. <laughs> Interesting way to think about it, though. But, you know, and so in some way, think of me as that bishop. I've got a spear in your back, and I want you guys get into the battle. Okay? Get out there and fight. Because we can complain and we can bemoan the fact that Christmas is being attacked, that the liberals are on the rampage. But the reality is, is that the liberals are here. They've been in our churches for decades now. And it's, there is no right that we have to claim that the gospel should continue on. We can't just say that my son was born to a Christian family, therefore he has to be a Christian. No, I have a responsibility to preach Christ, to show him his sins, and to show him that he needs a Savior. It is our job as Christians to take the message of the gospel that has been given to us so richly and so freely and share it with the people around us. The fishing is fantastic right now. When you go fishing, you always want to look for that spot where there's a ton of fish and no one else is fishing. Throw your line out anywhere. I guarantee you're going to catch some fish right now. I love surfing into sites where there's discussions going on with people who are outright pagans and hostile to the gospel. Guy finds if somebody's really angry at God angry to the point that they're willing to write about it and blog about it, that's the person I want to talk to. Let's see if we can wrap this up. The Christmas miracle. Talking about Christmas. By the way, if you go to Walmart or to Macy's 
or to any shopping center and somebody says to you, happy holidays, say to them, thank you. Happy holidays back to you and a Merry Christmas because Jesus Christ came to save you. Your Savior was born on Christmas Day. There's nothing preventing you from saying that. Nothing. No law, no rule, no whatever. Pray with them if you want to. The Christmas miracle is this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. In history, Luke puts the Messiah. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. We know when. We know where. We even know how. We can pinpoint this to within a three-year window. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. This is something that you can go backwards in time with your video camera and you'd capture the whole event. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to, in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem the town of David, because he belonged to the house of the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. It was not a daughter, religious leftists. It was a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to men on whom His favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The Christmas miracle is that that Christmas morning, that evening, the angels announced to us that a Savior had been born. And in all the places He could have been born, the God of the universe who created the heavens, the earth, the starry hosts, the galaxies, the black holes, the quasars, and every atomic particle and element, he was born in a barn. 
Now, when I used to, when I was growing up and I didn't clean my room, my mom would ask me, were you born in a barn? She did. But ponder this. Jesus was. A little bit off topic, but still on topic. Remember the tabernacle from the Old Testament? They want, you know, there was a place of worship that they built for God. The sacrifices were to occur there. They've rebuilt it. Several people have actually gone and, you know, throughout history have rebuilt this thing, and it's ugly. It is probably one of the ugliest worship centers known to man. It's big, it's boxy, it's brown, it's a tent. At that time, the competing religions and I idolatrous religions of the world had great temples to Zeus, to Artemis, to Athena. The tent of Yahweh didn't look anything like that. What is with this God who's so high and exalted and glorious that He would want to be worshipped in a tent? This is the same God who chose to be born in a barn. The greatest became the least among us. He went to where we wouldn't look for him. Why? Because in our sin we are prideful. We are arrogant. We seem to think we're important. Jesus came as a servant. Suffering servant. Born in a barn. That's the miracle of Christmas. That your Savior came to you humble, ready to take on your sins. And He did, and He fulfilled it. We are sinful men. And over and over again, we read in Scriptures, when people, mortal, sinful people, come in contact with the holy, the glorious, that's when we really get to see what, we're, what we are made of. And when we are in the presence of a holy being, Without Christ covering us up, it is a scary proposition. It is a scary proposition. They are scary to us. And there's nothing like them. And it is not hard to imagine that in their holiness that we would be undone. In fact, we read in Isaiah, when Isaiah is called, he gets up to heaven and he realizes, I'm undone, I'm a man of clean lips. And over and over again, you see the angel saying, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So the message of Christmas is that unto us a Savior was born. Christ the Lord. All of Scripture, from Moses to the prophets to the book of Revelation, is about Him. One of the things I love about the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is it's got good Christ-centered theology in it. And if you would... Let's meditate on some of these lines and we'll close with it. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Ah! Joyful all you nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, and with angelic hosts proclaim that Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. 
Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. Pleased as man with us to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Hail, the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail, the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that we no more may die. Born to raise each child of earth. Born to give a second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. This is the message of Christmas. And this is the message of our gospel. And this is the message that we need to bring to those who think the Bible's a bunch of rules some philosophical work, and they're confused. The fishing is great right now. Put the hooks out. Let's catch some men. Uh-huh.